Hi everybody, welcome to CM Memes. Before I come to the topic of this show, I would like to make a few comments on my little experiment with having a discussion partner on the podcast. So in the past two episodes, I tried a time-delayed conversation with a friend of mine. And I did not yet feel up to a real-time conversation because, yeah, as I have already admitted, I'm not a very fast thinker. However, it now turned out that even with this time-delayed mode, where both discussion partners can think arbitrarily long about their reply, even without any time pressure, I had sometimes trouble to understand what my partner had meant. Maybe this was simply due to the specific topic, which was rather abstract, or it was due to a slightly different way of thinking between the two of us. Or I am simply not experienced enough as an interviewer. You know, before all my 43 German episodes and my 49 English ones, they had all been completely solo. And this last interview was just a first test yeah, for a new format. But now thinking of it, it was not an interview at all. What we have tried was a genuine scientific brainstorming in public, yeah, trying to tackle an unsolved problem together. And this is like hiking with a friend yeah, in an uncharted landscape and filming all the time. Since, since there are always some unexpected obstacles, one has often to change direction. Yeah? So the path is meandering yeah? and sometimes a promising way forward turns out to be a dead end. And additionally, I want to make sure that all listeners can follow the conversation. So each time a concept is used that cannot be considered as standard knowledge, yeah? for example, it is a specific physics thing or a mathematical thing or from whatever special field, I will try to explain that. And this takes some time, of course, and it kind of interrupts the brainstorming process. Yeah? So I have not yet found a good solution for this problem. From the podcasting point of view, the brainstorming mode, I think, is more difficult than a regular interview. Yeah? In a normal podcast interview, the guest has usually a lot more experience in a specific topic. For example, because he or she has written a book about it or spent many years researching about it. Yeah? And the host has usually studied the work of the guest, at least roughly, and is now asking specific questions about this given topic. So in an interview, there are clear roles. The host is basically asking and the guest is mostly answering. And this is not what Arthur and I have been doing last time. Yeah? We were talking about a problem for which none of us has a good solution in the moment. So maybe considering that I'm a beginner in non-solo podcasting, I should have recorded standard interviews the first couple of times. And only then 
you know, with larger experience, do the public brainstorming thing. But anyway, this was an interesting experience and certainly a lot can be improved in the future. Another little issue may have been the sound quality, which was probably a bit worse than normally. So I personally don't mind the sound uh, in a podcast conversation. I think the content is most important here. But the reason for the non-perfect sound was because we were simply recording our questions and replies using voice messages on Telegram. You know, this is quite convenient when you don't want to sit in front of your computer all the time. Also, the Telegram sound files are automatically time-labeled. So in the end, I can throw all my messages into one folder and all those of my discussion partner into another folder. And then I run a little Python script that I've written, which first improves the sound a bit and then stitches all messages together. So this works nicely. Only the way how I integrate the music breaks is not very elegant in the moment, but I'm working on this. Or another possibility would of course be to, to use a ready-made system yeah, for, for interview-style podcasting. And I guess my podcast provider Anchor already has such a system for free. And I only have this terrible tendency to do everything by myself. Anyway, generally speaking, I find it refreshing to have other minds on the show from time to time. And so you may expect more dialogues to come. And I really hope that other friends of mine will also join the show at some point. Okay, another friend of mine, let's call him ST, after his initials, who is also a long-time listener to the show, he has just last evening written me an email that he finds idealism an interesting concept, but he wonders what I am actually doing with this concept now. Now, Assuming that I have interpreted his question correctly, which is not at all guaranteed, he presumably means after having talked so much about the concept itself in the past episodes, how does idealism affect my day-to-day -day life, I guess? Actually, this question about the practical implications of the idealist worldview, this is exactly what I was most interested in in the past weeks. And believe it or not, I have recently experienced really an ongoing stream of little synchronicities which all point towards this question. So I think it is the proper topic for this episode. 
But where shall I start? Maybe a good entry point is when I flipped from the mainstream materialist worldview to idealism. How has my life changed since then? How was it before and how afterwards? Okay, I have to admit that even before my idealistic period, I was not an extreme physicalist. After all, I had a deep interest in spirituality, since my childhood actually, and I was reading tons of books about such topics and also about Eastern views of consciousness. I was also meditating and not to reduce stress or because of some tiny health benefits, but because, yeah, in order to maybe get enlightened. Oh gosh. Anyway, uh, during the pre-idealist period, I always had considered it possible that the world is very different from what science makes us believe. And in particular, when things got tough, I was often consoling myself with the idea that all this is anyway just an illusion. Yeah? And I think without keeping in mind at least a tiny possibility that the physicalist worldview is grossly incorrect in, in, in a fundamental way, without that little spark of hope, I could not have kept my mental sanity for so long. Because the materialist worldview is fucking depressing. <laughs> a universe of mindless particles you know, stupidly bouncing around in quantum fields and interacting according to boring local rules that can only be described by abstract mathematical equations. Yeah? Go to the web and have a look at this ugly, ridiculously long and stitched together Lagrangian of the standard model. Yeah? The most famous and fundamental model in physics, which has no built-in goals, no built-in tendency to form more complex entities. And yet, yeah, no one, or almost no one, of the scientific establishment is questioning that out of these goal-free, stupid quantum fields, all nature and culture arises by some miraculous effects of emergence. In my humble opinion, apart from being entirely unproven, the whole idea of complexity emerging automatically from the quantum level up to living beings, this whole idea is even an insult to the beauty of nature. Yeah? The idea that all of nature and all of culture is just an irrelevant byproduct, yeah? an epiphenomenon of elementary particle field interactions. Yeah? This idea is extremely depressing. I don't know who said this. Maybe it was Richard Feynman, I'm not sure. But some famous scientist said, and, and I'm phrasing in my own words here, this guy said that the beauty of a flower 
is not diminished just because we know that the flower is simply, you know, a bunch of molecules moving around and interacting according to local forces. But for me, this thought of microscopic determinism always did destroy the experience of beauty. Yeah? And I would even go one step further. Whenever I started to understand something in a mechanistic way, or when I believed to understand it, then it immediately lost its beauty for me. And this is the reason why, even before my turn to idealism, I refused to touch certain dear parts of my life with my analytic mind. Yeah? For example, I hate to analyze jazz lines or chords. When I'm improvising on the piano and I play a complex jazz chord or a spontaneous melody line, then I don't even know which notes I play. I don't want to know. And it is even essential for me to keep my thinking, analyzing mind shut off during playing or listening to music. And it's the same with eating and cooking food. I saw some books which try to explain scientifically how various cooking processes work physically, you know, and I was never interested in such stuff. Yeah? In cooking, I simply want to taste a sauce, for example, and when I feel some flavor is missing, I will add something which might fix the problem. Yeah, trial and error, but please no theory here. Yeah, and don't forget that I'm a theoretical physicist by profession, so I know very well that theory can be fun. But some parts of life should be theory-free, in my opinion. I'm still talking about the time before my flip to idealism. And you see, I already had some anti-scientific tendencies at this time, or let me better say some anti-physicalist tendencies, yeah? while I still considered myself a member of the scientific mainstream. Okay, at this time, as many mainstream scientists still do, I simply ignored the hard problem of consciousness. And I thought that yeah, at some point in the future, some unexpected solution will pop up. Yeah? Or maybe some entirely new concept will be invented, yeah? which is somehow between matter and mind. Or which encompasses both of them, whatever. Yeah? <laughs> Wishful thinking. And Then came my flip to idealism. It came when I realized once and for all that the hard problem is not 
a normal problem, but a category mistake and therefore cannot be solved even in principle. Yeah? Like, there is no real number which gives minus one when squared. Yeah? And in the same way, there is no objective meta configuration which can ever generate subjective experiences. Yeah? This insight, together with all the fantastic arguments in the books of Bernardo Kastrup, this finally let me flip to idealism. But to be honest, my personal flip had two stages. Before the idealist flip, there came a kind of Kantian insight. I call this now Kantian because it was a direct and really shocking insight into the distinction between the phenomenal and the nominal world. And I guess I have told the story several times on this show already, but I was hiking in the forest, thinking about consciousness, and suddenly it became clear to me that all the countless trees and plants and stones around me and the floor below my feet and the sky and clouds above and even my body, all this stuff is actually not the world out there, as we usually believe. It cannot be, because the photons are absorbed by my retina, and behind the eyes it is pitch dark in the skull. Yeah? All what we call the world out there is actually just a state of consciousness, a construct if you wish. It is all just an appearance on the so-called screen of perception. And we have not the slightest idea what is behind that screen and which presumably gives rise to our subjective perceptions. Now, even though this is obvious and even trivial in retrospect, it was really an ontological shock for me in that moment, but an immensely pleasant shock. I realized that consciousness must be something marvelous yeah? if it can create a forest in my mind with such extraordinary beauty and such an unbelievable richness in detail. And at that time, I thought that what lies behind the screen of perception is probably something entirely out of our understanding. Yeah? I try to imagine it as something completely dark, without any sound, without any smell, without any warmth or cold, without hardness or softness, yeah? even without time and space. What could that be? Maybe something like mathematics? In any case, I thought it must be something dry and boring. Yeah? compared to the rich experience within my mind. And so I felt really a strong gratitude that I can enjoy such a great conscious mind. Yeah. And this was the first step in my flip to idealism.
The final part of my flip to idealism was simply to, to recognize that what is behind the screen of perception, the so-called noumenon, that this cannot possibly be mathematics. Something purely abstract and devoid of qualitative properties cannot possibly make qualia arise in consciousness, right? So after my Kantian insight, I was still caught in a dualist worldview and I was still ignoring the hard problem like my fellow scientists. But I had to face this problem at some point. And just at this point, Bernardo Kastrup entered my life and convinced me by his books that the most parsimonious solution to the hard problem of consciousness is that behind the screen of perception is simply more of the same stuff, more of the same category as there is before the screen. Yeah? On both sides of the screen is consciousness. However, behind there presumably exists an extra-personal consciousness, also called mind at large, to which our localized and partly dissociated personal minds have no complete and direct access, at least not normally. Yeah? Our personal minds are kind of shielded by some protective boundary which allows only a limited interaction with mind at large. And this protective boundary corresponds to our sensor and motor organs. So our perceptions are limited because they are filtered and simplified versions of what goes really on behind the screen and presumably they are shaped by natural evolution with the purpose of showing us only aspects that are relevant for survival. And also our actions are limited by what we call physical interactions. Yeah? We have to physically move our hand to our glass of water and to lift it by muscle force in order to drink. Yeah? Of course, all these physical events are only images on the screen and physics is exploring how these observable events are causally related and how they can be modeled and predicted and exploited by technology. And so we have no idea what, what really happens in mind at large when we drink a sip of water. Because our arm and the glass and our mouth are like simplified desktop icons yeah, on a computer screen. So this was the final step of my flip. Now I was left in a universe of consciousness only. But coming finally back to the main question, what was the effect of this flip on my daily life? Well, first not very much changed. Yeah? Even when you accept that matter is just a specific type of conscious experience, yeah? a type which is particularly regular and stable and it's also shared with other minds. So even after realizing that matter is also just mind stuff, it of course still appears in our perceptions, in its 
good old way. Yeah? Water is still sparkling and wet. Stones are still heavy and hard. And <laughs> the voltage meter still shows 1.5 volts when I hold the two test probes to the poles of an AA battery. Yeah? So, in my personal experience, at first there was no large abrupt change in my life after becoming an idealist. But there were subtle changes which had interesting long-term effects. For me, maybe the most powerful gradual effect came from the computer desktop metaphor of Donald Hoffman. Because this means that our current physics is probably not the only physics available. Yeah? Take the computer analogy serious for a moment. When you only use a small set of particular apps on your PC for a very long time and you get completely used to it, to the point where you do not need to think uh, about the internal logic anymore, then you may start to take for granted that the rules, you know, the user guidelines for, for how to successfully operate these apps, that those rules are universal laws of nature. But of course they are not. Another program will have different rules, different user interfaces, and they will offer different possibilities of acting in the world, in quotation marks. Please remember, when I say the world, I just mean our current user interface, which is defined by these apps that we have currently available and activated. We can, in principle, change these apps and thereby change the observable properties of the universe. So for me, the flip to idealism opened up a completely new universe, one which is much wider in possibilities than the one of mainstream science. And some people, like Donald Hoffman, even think the possibilities are infinite and fundamentally unexhaustible. Take, for example, paranormal phenomena. You know, remote viewing, telepathy, precognition, psychokinesis, past life memories, or the whole UFO topic, and all this weird stuff happening at places like Skinwalker Ranch. All these fringe things, which have been ridiculed for decades, by mainstream science, just because these phenomena are not supported by the apps, so to say, that scientists are currently playing with, yeah, all this easily fits into the idealist worldview. In particular, if you consider consciousness as some infinitely flexible substrate yeah, that can instantiate all possible sets of rules and experiences. So, for me, the flip to idealism really felt like a gradual escape from a narrow straitjacket. Yeah, since then, my life has become ten times more interesting. Because in my spare time, at least, I'm now reading books and listen to podcasts about fringy topics. Yeah? And I feel again like a child. Yeah? 
A child which is learning what amazing things are out there in the world and way to be explored. And yes, I think these things could and should be explored with scientific methods or with slightly modified scientific methods. So this opening up to a wider universe, this alone was an absolutely amazing gift of my flip to idealism. Of course, even a mainstream scientist yeah, could theoretically come to the conclusion that our present world model is extremely incomplete. And no doubt there is still a lot of conventional stuff to be discovered in science. Yeah? But I think the most amazing new possibilities, in particular the so-called paranormal phenomena, they all have to do with consciousness. And they require that consciousness is fundamental and that it can create manifestations that appear like matter, not the other way around. said about idealism so far in this episode and about its mind-opening effect. Most of this I have certainly mentioned before in my show. But this time I would like to talk about an aspect which I just recently have started to discover. You know, because I'm a scientist, my mind is strongly obsessed with understanding the world. Not only scientifically, but also philosophically. So I can't help it. It's, it's one of my central traits that defines my character. And so after I turned to idealism and after I realized that there is something unknown behind the screen of perception, which I could, by the way, also call the screen of physical observability, yeah, after I realized this, my first impulse was to understand that unknown thing. Yeah? So as an analogy, when you have lived your whole life in a virtual reality game, yeah? naively assuming that this specific game is all there is, and then suddenly you discover that you are, so to say, wearing a VR helmet, wouldn't you immediately like to take off that helmet? Or at least try to find out the computer which controls the helmet. Uh, if you are like me, the first impulse would be to find this computer and to try to understand it, so that in the end you may be able to manipulate it, uh, and, and so to control by yourself in which world you live in. And this would amount to understanding and manipulating consciousness in the same manner as we have treated matter within science. Yeah. You know, a scientist will look from the outside at the object of interest 
will define quantities that can be measured, will identify other quantities that can be affected by our will. But all this is quite difficult in the case of consciousness. You know, at best, we can measure the physical correlates of consciousness, like brain signals. And of course, by using direct brain readouts, yeah, like in Elon Musk's Neuralink, yeah, combined with direct brain stimulation, maybe by such methods we can in the future do crazy things, like couple several minds together and eventually get better and better translation tables between objective brain states and subjective mind states. But what will we achieve by this way? You know, what is so nice with understanding some correlations or causations? What is so nice with creating more and more novel technology? You know, what I have almost forgotten is that apart from being a scientist or a philosopher, there are also some other ways of living a life. What about the life of a farmer? or of a craftsman, or the life of an artist. And once I had realized that we can only see what the screen of perception is ready to show us, I first experienced this as a limitation, you know, something unsatisfactory. I was immediately greedy for new different experiences. Yeah? This is the typical materialist mindset. Uh, and this time I'm using the word materialist in the socio-economic sense, yeah? not philosophically. And for this reason, I have been using words like what we see is just an appearance. You know, always be alert if somebody is using the word just, yeah? because there's often a, a subtle manipulation at work. Again, I was a bit blinded here, by the consensus worldview. Because we recently tend in science to explain everything, especially in psychology, by evolutionary reasons. Yeah? And so I first agreed that these filters, which limit our perception of mind at large, they are very probably shaped by evolution. Yeah? And so we probably are limited to see what is conductive to surviving and to producing offspring. Yeah. And when I realized this, I immediately hated evolution for treating me like, like that, yeah? as, a, as a gene carrier and proliferator. Yeah. But recently, I see that something must be wrong with that view. Yeah. Of course, I can understand that evolution allows us to see the physical structures and living creatures around us only to the extent that they are relevant for gene spreading. Yeah? But for example, there, there could be a complete shadow biome on our planet yeah? or interdimensional beings just around us and who knows what. Yeah? And except in some paranormal events, we never get to see those other beings. That makes sense. But then I wondered, why do humans have this extraordinary sense for beauty? Why is the natural world so extremely beautiful? 
you may say again that evolution wants us to experience parts of the planet as beautiful, which are conductive for our survival. Yeah, like a nice tropical island or something. But strangely, we also find deserts and high mountain areas beautiful, which are deadly, at least without the right preparation. Yeah. And what about the extreme pleasure of excellent food or of art? In, in my case, most of all, music. Yeah. Please, please don't tell me that my deep pleasure with music is just an epiphenomenon of, I don't know, my general pattern recognition capabilities or my capacity for language, yeah, which then in turn helps me survive. This is bullshit, yeah, in my humble opinion. I, I simply don't accept any longer that standard evolution theory explains the human sense of beauty, for example. And by the way, I believe that not only human animals enjoy the world far beyond what is required for survival. Yeah? Other animals do as well. Just observe birds flying, yeah? how they enjoy their sharp turns and their speed of travel yeah? and their mutual interactions in midair. Or a cat enjoying the sunlight in a nap. Yeah? So, I'm now recently rediscovering something about life which is perhaps entirely trivial for most non-scientists and non-philosophers. Yeah? That instead of understanding consciousness in a scientific sense, there's also a completely different way of relating to it, namely by enjoying it. Now, enjoying life may be something very basic and something that is available for all conscious beings, even for non-human animals and perhaps even for plants. But I personally have the feeling that Enjoying life, which is another word for enjoying consciousness, this becomes increasingly difficult the more you develop your capacity for analyzing the world 
scientifically and philosophically. The more people have a scientific and in particular a physicalist mindset, the more they are caught up in abstract mental constructs, the less they are able to come back to this naive mindset, which is, which is much closer to the raw sense data, and which does not seek to, to cover reality in a net of abstract concepts, but instead seeks to drift in reality, like in a water stream. to give up control to a certain extent and to let yourself be carried away almost helplessly but without fear but with constant surprise What I want to explore and to cultivate from now on, what I want to spend much more time on, and what I would like to share with you in some future episodes of this show, is this naive mindset. Because this mindset really must be cultivated again once you have grown adult. It's almost an art form. And it has a lot to do with Zen and meditation and mindful living. Because you enjoy life better if you increase your ability to focus but also to defocus on demand. And it helps to sharpen your senses. To increase their steadiness but also their resolution and their sensitivity. You can also enjoy life better if you do the right kind of 
simple actions. And if you become aware of how pleasant these simple activities actually are. And it may also help you and others if you share those experiences. To be honest, there are quite some people out there who already practice this lifestyle for quite a long time. One of them is Ian Miller, a Twitter friend of mine in Australia. Hi Ian, if you should listen to this podcast. He is a Zen practitioner and he has a very nice blog called Shojivax. I will I will put a link to the show notes. And in this blog he often describes simple activities like brewing a coffee or whatever. He describes these things in a very nice way. Because each time I read one of these blog posts, I feel a bit calmer and happier. It slows down time and it increases the joy of life. <laughs> 